Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Welcome to the Extra Sauce Podcast. It's my fancy sauce. I want some fancy sauce. Yeah. Not done using it. With the czar of sauces, Greg Hill. What's going on, Mark Shu? What is up? Been a while. How was England? Well, it was fantastic. Thank you for asking. How were the sauces in uh, England? The, the sauces were not that great. I, I'm yeah. not a vinegar. Are you a vinegar on fries guy? Yes, you absolutely. are. That's big yeah. over there. Fish and chips. Yeah, vinegar on the, the chips. vinegar. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, I mean, it was it was a lot of fun. It was you know, it was my kids are old and they don't like to spend a lot of time with their parents anymore. So it was nice to go away and and they and, couldn't and were, force them to in, yeah. a, in a different country yeah. where they can't escape. They couldn't escape. <laughs> It's kind of like the subject that we're going to talk about today. It's like a cult, uh, a dad cult. On on Extra Sauce. (laughs) Extra Sauce this week is brought to you by Rodenheiser. Nice people, great service. Anytime, it's well documented that I don't do any work on my home myself. I hire people. (laughs) I'm not a home improvement guy, and anytime I need anything done, electrical, plumbing, uh, heating, air conditioning, uh, Rodenheiser does it, and they do it well. So get a hold of them, and, and, uh, and they are presenting this episode of Extra Sauce, which is all about a documentary that that I've been obsessed with on Netflix called Wild Wild Country. It's about a cult that began in India in the in the 70s, a kind of a, a free sex enlightenment type cult, which, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm all for that. I do, sure. do we have any of those around here that somebody can, can you join it part time or do you have to be all in? The only I mean, thing I know that has like a free sex cult thing going is uh, is uh, government. Oh, oh yeah. That's about it, though, right now. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, they decided to come to America and they bought thousands and thousands of acres in, in Oregon and started fighting with the, uh, Oregonians and, mm-hmm. um, and, and then the whole entire thing just spiraled out of control and it is covered in six uh, amazing docu-series episodes on Netflix, which you've enjoyed. I mean, it's a I little mean, slow. It, it's, well, it's, there's a lot of information to yeah. deal with. So the first episode is kind of setting you up for the very quick unraveling of Everybody that yeah. happens in the documentary, it it just it happens so quickly, so it's good. You got to make it through the first two episodes, take in all the information, and then it just it's easier for you to process this unreal stuff that happens. Well, the directors of Wild Wild Country on Netflix are joining us this week on Extra Sauce, McLean and Chapman Way, and they put it all together, and they're here today to give us a little extra sauce on Wild Wild Country, guys. Hey guys, thanks for having us on. We appreciate it. Well, I, I yeah, can, we're excited. I, listen, I consider myself to be. A, I grew up in the '80s. I'm an old man. I'm 51. I, I consider myself to have been somewhat focused on what was going on around me at the time when when I was when I was a teenager, news wise. But I completely missed this whole entire story. I, I, how did you guys become familiar with it? Yeah, well, we were kind of born after the whole kind of Oregon saga happened with Roshanish Purim, and so we were just basically given a tip from an archivist who had like 300 hours of never-before-seen footage on this story. 
And I remember I immediately asked my parents, I was like, hey, do you remember this Rajneesh Burham story or this guru, Bhagwan Rajneesh? And my dad kind of faintly remembered the Rolls Royce guru, but that seemed <laughs> yes. to be about it. And yeah. it seemed like the story had really just kind of disappeared. The For for those who haven't followed my advice and, and my pleadings to watch, um, the uh, indeed uh, he 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 had how many Rolls Royces did he did he end up with? He, at one point, they end up with either thirty or forty Rolls Royces. This very religious guy. I think by the end it was ninety three was the was the total count <laughs> by by nineteen eighty six. Yeah, wow. and he you know he he ran this cult in in uh, in India and um, you know began to I, I guess you know be somewhat of a threat almost to the government of India, hence why the cult decided that they needed to come to America. Is that a fair representation of, of what happened? Yeah, I think he was yeah, kind of so, the first Indian guru to kind of like marry like like Western capitalism and like open sexuality with like Eastern mysticism. So he just had a ton of followers flocking from all over the world, a lot of Westerners and you know, thousands of people migrating to India and it created some conflict with the locals there in India, created some tension with the government officials. Um, also, later in the series, you know, there's there's some criminality aspects that were under investigation at this ashram in India. So there was kind of like a multitude of events that kind of forced them out of India and then into America. Yeah, I mean, when you say he was the first, he, he probably was the last, too. I mean, I, I mean, you suggest... To people that you can have lots of money and all the sex you want, and somehow that's your religion. People are probably going to buy into that for a for a period of time, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. This was kind of just like right at the beginning of. It was kind of like the last remnants of this, like kind of like nineteen sixties countercultural movement, where it was the beginning of what's known as like this human potential movement, and it was almost this like eastern migration of Americans to India who are. They call themselves seekers, and they are kind of like on a path of they want to they want to walk a path of enlightenment and raise their consciousness. And I mean, all of the you know gurus in India and a lot of those like Hinduistic traditions were about like rejection and kind of rejection of wealth and food, and that's how you become enlightened. And Bhagwan kind of married like this Western capitalism with Eastern mysticism, and it struck big. I mean, obviously, as you can tell, a lot of Americans liked what he was saying. They liked the fact that you could have a life of pleasure and still feel like you're becoming enlightened and so they he kind of just took off i think all, a big part of the reason why he came to america too was because like india has had a lot of gurus in the past and i think he looked at america as a country that hadn't had a lot of gurus and america was kind of almost like the major leagues and if like <laughs> he could come to america and like make it big in america and like leave a mark on america then that would be a huge legacy that he would have you know, I, that's the part of this documentary that fascinates me the most. You know, Greg mentioned you offer somebody, you know, free sex, you know, and, and uh, you know, eternal peace or whatever. Sure, you're going to go for it. But it just seems like the way, like Jane Stork, the way the Australian woman, yeah. the way she described yeah. first meeting or seeing the Bhagwan and like just giving her entire being to him. And that's the common story here is all these people just gave up everything to give to him and follow every single word he said. There's got to be Even some- when he wasn't talking for right, like three he, or yeah, four years. They still did that. So <laughs> these people, they must have had something in their lives. I mean, it was like he something missing in their lives that, that they just would give themselves up, up so freely. 
Yeah, I think that there was a wide range of sannyasins that joined. I think the really interesting thing about this movement is that, for the most part, it was highly intellectual, very successful people, people that had reached the pinnacle of their careers and found out, hey, this isn't as fulfilling as I was promised or I thought it would be. Like, there's got to be something more to life. And so um, it was a really interesting uh, kind of smorgasbord of, of human beings that joined this movement. Obviously, yes, a lot of them, you know, did come from rough childhood, rough, you know, rough family backgrounds and found comfort and, and, and community and, and family in, in this movement. I think that's what makes the story so complex is that, um, you know, these are real human beings with, with real problems like the rest of us that, that joined this movement. Another thing that was really interesting is like our experience talking to kind of like whether they're current Russian issues or former Russian issues was a lot of them did grow up with like kind of highly religious chi- uh, childhoods um, and, and backgrounds. And so for I think in some way it wasn't so much a story of them never being religious or never being spiritual and then just kind of seeing Bhagwan and then just that devotion absolutely just kicks in immediately. A lot of times that like sometimes to me it felt talking to them that it was like a substitution of some sort where mm-hmm. they were either raised like highly Catholic or Christian or Mormon or kind of a quote unquote like more traditional religious background and then kind of became disillusioned with that and then came across Bhagwan and found comfort kind of in that spirituality again. And then, I mean, the weird thing was, is kind of towards the end, as we would speak to members, when Bhagwan did take his vow of silence, their, like, appreciation for their experience, it seemed to be, was more geared towards just the sense of, like, family and community that they felt they had out in Oregon, because Bhagwan wasn't talking. And so I think that, yeah, a lot of the wants and desires came from a place of wanting to be a part of something, wanting to be a part of a family, wanting to feel a connection with something, which I think a lot of, in our experience, just talking to them, a lot of them said that they had that out there. Well, one one of the most interesting things, uh, interview-wise, that you get to see is uh, is the daughter of a congressman who was killed while investigating uh, Jim Jones uh, and his cult in uh, Guyana, and uh, the fact that she has gone and joined this cult after everything that happened to her father. Yeah, it was, you know, this the Roshni sperm started in 1981, so it was just two or three years after the whole Jonestown massacre, and so. You know, in the documentary, we kind of get into this kind of, uh, you know, cult hysteria and paranoia that's sweeping the nation. And there's, you know, a lot of right-wing evangelicals like using the word cult to kind of like delegitimize any group that's different than Christianity. And you get to hear from from uh, Leo Ryan's daughter, you know, who talks about, hey, this is, you know, this is not a cult from from their perspective. This is a, a religious minority sect. You know, we're here to do farming. We're here to enlighten ourselves. You know, Jim Jones was was a Christian, we're Eastern mysticism. They're two totally different concepts. And so I think it's a really interesting part in the series for the audience to have to do some critical thinking and think about what is the difference between religion and cult. And, you know, it's not always so black and white. So the the uh, cult, I'll call them a cult, they, the, the, they buy 80,000 acres in, uh, in Oregon, a ranch, and that's where things really start to get fucked up. And yeah. so um, <laughs> they, they came and they were not welcomed by the townspeople, and um, they certainly fought back. And, and this is where we really get to meet uh, who I think is the most interesting and disturbing person in, in the whole entire documentary. And and that is Sheila. I mean, I and and just I, I, how did you how did you get to her? And maybe tell everybody a little bit about her and and how you ended up getting to her. Yeah, Manon Sheila is 
known as the personal secretary for the guru, but really she was kind of the CEO of this entire religious empire. She really kind of built the entire movement. She also built pretty much the entire utopia, did all the planning. And when the guru took a vow of silence and wasn't speaking anymore, she became the face of the movement. She spoke publicly. She would do talk shows. She was on television a lot. And she's just this really kind of feisty, foul-mouthed, provocative um, young woman who really didn't take a lot of shit from people. And I think that, you know, this brown woman coming to Eastern Oregon, which is an incredibly conservative cowboy culture, um, it was just this huge clash of cultures out there between this woman and, and this neighboring town of Antelope. Now, how much, you say a brown-skinned woman, how much do you think racism or bigotry, religious bigotry, played into this? Because it seemed like, the way you guys made it seem like, in the beginning, this didn't seem so bad. These people were growing vegetables, they were making their own schools, that's fine. We have religious groups in this country, like the Westboro Baptist Church, who I wish we'd get rid of, but they have every right to exist. So how much did bigotry or racism force them into what they became and what Sheila became? Like, did they push her? Did, yeah, was that in your view? Of like, I, I, yeah, I think that's one of, like, the central questions of the series, and I don't think that there's, like, real, like, uh, like a black-and-white answer to that. Obviously, like, if you talk to Sanyasins or Roshnishis, whether they're current or former, they'll tell you, like, their experience was, is, like, they didn't really feel that welcome in Eastern Oregon. And then, obviously, if you talk to Oregonians, in a justifiable sense, they'll tell you, like, hey, our lives were, like, severely negatively impacted by the Roshnishi's yeah. arrival and presence in Oregon. I think what had happened was is that, like, Sheila, I think, felt like she had bought a 64,000-acre ranch in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like, it was 19 miles away from Antelope. She probably felt like she was allowed to do whatever she wants out there and very rapidly sinks $120 million of her own organization's money into kind of transforming this wasteland into, like, their utopia. And I think what happens quickly is that she kind of runs up against these, like, very strict Oregon land use laws, which, like, Oregon, with the exception of the state of Hawaii, has some of the most tight-lipped, some of the most tight, restrictive land use laws in the country. And so very quickly, I think Sheila finds herself in a position where she's committed her entire organization and a vast majority of their resources to this plan. So there really is no backtracking at this point. Um, but I think the question becomes, like, whether the land use was really what the local ranchers were objecting to or not. Today, the current tenants of the ranch are Young Life, a Christian group. They're essentially doing the same exact thing the Roshanishis are doing. Uh. And when we were out there, our kind of feedback that we were getting from Eastern Oregonians was that they don't really have too much of a problem with Young Life. Granted, there's a lot of differences between the two groups, but I think it's I, I think that question of bigotry and racism it's kind of one of the more central questions of the series. I think. Yeah. I would say there's definitely there was definitely a, a few elements of racism and bigotry, but I don't think it was necessarily indicative of the entire community of Antelope. I think. Every Everyone kind of had their own concerns and their own fears. And mostly, you know, these are people that like to live off the grid. They don't like to be bothered. They've moved to eastern Oregon, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere for a purpose. And, uh, you know, when this new group of 10,000 people dressed head to toe in red moved in the next door, it just kind of all hell broke loose. And some people, when backed into a corner like Sheila was, would respond in a court of law. Sheila had her own unique a batshit crazy way of responding in in several cases, and I wanna I wanna discuss that. We just have to pause briefly though to to uh, pass the uh, offering plate around here, guys. Uh, but when 
Uh, no problem. When when we return, I want to discuss the the sad fate of the beavers yeah. uh, and and other <laughs> and other things. But uh, we're extra sauce is brought to you by Rodenheiser. So we have a quick message from our friends at Rodenheiser. Rodenheiser is growing and actively seeking to hire teams of experienced HVAC and plumbing technicians as well as electricians right now. They offer endless benefits, full health and dental insurance, a generous 401k plan, three weeks paid time off, and even tuition reimbursement. So what can you do? How about heading over to Rodenheiser.com to apply now? R-O-D-E-N-H-I-S-E-R. Quit your job and start a career with Rodenheiser. And now, let's get to the show. So uh, once uh, once Sheila is uh, is sort of feeling threatened, not only does she go out and uh, try to buy up the town and and uh, and arm, uh, you know the 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 uh, the the cult police force with with millions of rounds of ammo and AK forty sevens and everything, but she also starts to uh, try to win some elections, which I think is when this thing really really turns interesting, guys. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, like, one of the more terrifying aspects of this story isn't even so much the actual illegality and criminality of the story. It's actually everything the Roshanishis were able to do that was legal. <laughs> like, right. it's legal yeah, to buy a, a was town and, and take over. It's actually legal to bust in 5,000 homeless people and register them because Oregon only <laughs> had a 20-day uh, voter residency requirement. Uh, it's legal that they had a Roshanish peace force that they were able to send their members uh, to the Oregon State Police Academy because they were an incorporated city. So I think uh, what's interesting thing is like at a at the heart of the story of Rashnish Purim oftentimes is like the amount of political power that one that that an organization can get when they incorporate as their own town and have the money to buy up other towns um, and create like electoral mayhem. Now, obviously, towards the end, like it spills over so that it's completely illegal where you have assassination, conspiracy attempts against political appointees and and poisoning of 750 people with salmonella in local restaurants. Uh, but I, that was what I was so interested in starting the story was kind of actually seeing these seemingly very aggressive steps. But but that were essentially legal on the books. What's really fascinating about the poisoning is there's actually an equally terrifying event that happens right before that, which is, you know, the government refuses all of these people the right to vote, which just seems so un-American. Yeah, so it's kind right. of stunning. I don't know if that's ever even happened in the history of our country before, where, you know, you had Vietnam War veterans who were, yeah, they were busted into this community, but they felt uh, supportive from this community and wanted to vote uh, to be a part of this community and, and were denied the right to vote. And so I think Sheila, in retaliation, you know, concocted this absolutely bizarre plan to, you know, sprinkle salmonella in salad bars across the city so that the locals would get sick and they wouldn't be allowed to vote on Election Day. And when her homeless people that that she had had bussed in and brought to the community couldn't vote, she decided to drug all of them by by putting uh, something in their beer. See, the homeless plan doesn't work out to I think her to, to to anyone's expectation. It doesn't. It's not a very smooth kind of working out plan. But basically, um, when they're denied the right to vote, and they kind of have like what one of our interviewees Jane calls a hornet's nest in the community. Uh, at this point, yeah, kind of what you mentioned earlier in the interview was what we actually got back from a lot of Rosh Nations on the ranch, where as they were seeing homeless people getting busted into the ranch. 
they were kind of realizing like, man, this is so far away from our original goal of like raising our consciousness and peaceful meditation and practicing yoga in the middle of the Oregon desert. Uh, this is so different than that. Uh, and it very, and, and they would even talk to it kind of like how you mentioned it as kind of the beginning of the end. What's really interesting is the, you know, this was right after Reagan kind of defunded all, all the mental institutions in America. So there was just this influx of, of homeless people in the streets with really serious mental illnesses. And a lot of them were getting rounded up and, and bust to this commune in Oregon. And so, you know, within weeks of the, of the homeless arrival, thefts went up on the ranch, assaults went up on the ranch, sexual assaults were going up on the ranch. And so, it, like Max said, it really did create this hornet's nest within the community. And, and bizarrely, they felt the best way to handle this was to secretly put Haldol, which is a tranquilizer, into the beer that they would serve to the homeless people at nighttime to subdue them. And so, yeah, it's kind of the beginning of the end of this utopia, this uh, community, when that started happening. I feel like half of these, like half of the things you see in this are, are plot lines on the leftovers. I mean, it's like, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's amazing to me. <laughs> um, is, was Sheila's cooperation tough to get? And, and did you leave um, after interviewing her um, on many occasions? Did, did you leave with, with a, any kind of impression about her mental stability at this point? Yeah, we, we took about three different trips to Switzerland to spend time with Sheila. We got to know her. We got to know her family. We got to know the residents of her health uh, clinic that she runs now. Um, and it was a really interesting experience, like, getting to talk to her. Um, you know, she clearly feels like uh, she's never been really given an opportunity to explain this version of events from, from her perspective, from what she saw. And I think it's very clear when Sheila walks into these events, you know, she felt like she was pushed up you know, her back up against the wall. She felt like she was facing a lot of bigotry, a lot of persecution. Um, and, you know, this is how she she responded. And I think there's a lot of true crime documentaries where, you know, from the get-go, you're looking at the main character and just going, holy shit, you know, this person is, is insane. But I think the really more complex thing about Sheila is you get to know her from when she was a teenager, first coming to America, and you see this very am- ambitious, precocious, charming woman and then slowly through her devotion to this guru and to this movement you start to see her turn into someone else and so i think everyone's going to walk away with kind of a different impression of sheila it's been really fascinating kind of reading all the all the or the receptions on twitter and online and seeing people who are terrified of her people some people think she's a psychopath some people think she was an incredible leader, and so it's been really fascinating seeing everyone take away a take away something different from Sheila's interview. Yeah, well, I think it's another one of those themes that runs through this, which is that it doesn't matter how uh, you know how religious you are or how enlightened you are. It seems to me that that power corrupts, and that yeah, you know absolute, absolute power, power corrupts, yeah. corrupts absolutely. You know, oh. and it and it happened to Sheila. Yeah, no, I think what's interesting is like. Like kind of Chad mentioned, it's like when we first started doing the story, we didn't really approach it with a like a true crime. Like, what's the key event? What's the evidence? Who did it? Who didn't do it? Just because the facts remain of Roshni's perm is the criminality that happened out there is very well known, documented, and people pled guilty and served time doing it. So I think what we were interested in was like peeling back layers and looking at like the process of radicalization that can happen to people um, sometimes on both sides too. I mean, this was not like, I think that it was kind of a situation where I think a lot of people felt like all, I mean, a war essentially had broken out in the, in the, in Eastern Oregon. 
And it's like there might have been a few times where you saw, is there a road to compromise here? Is there a road to conflict resolution? And kind of as you're seeing both sides kind of become immediately entrenched in this, uh, you certainly know it's not going to end up well. And that was kind of certainly what we wanted to capture in, in Wild Wild Country. Guys, I watch a lot of television, and it is, for those reasons and, and others, it really is the most interesting documentary I've seen in, in our documentary series that I've seen in a long time. So congratulations, Thank and thanks a lot for joining us. And, and uh, I guess I, I promised we'd talk about the beavers. I mean, right. I the, the, uh, <laughs> just, just, just hang it out there. Just, uh, just, just, just hang it out to your I mean, right? they had... It doesn't end well for the beavers. That's all we have to say. It doesn't end well for the beavers. I mean, they they had this crazy plan to poison the water supply because they were fighting again with it, and they wanted to use beavers, live beavers, but that that didn't work, so they ended up putting the the beavers in blenders and then pouring the beaver remains into the water supply. I mean, and that's verified factual, right? If you if you want, you can say that it's uh, it's it's blended it's beavers meets Jamba Juice or something like that. Oh, <laughs> beaver <laughs> smoothie. Yeah. yeah, it's disturbing in so <laughs> many ways. Will, uh, All right. Well, listen, yeah. guys, thanks a lot for joining us and and giving us a little extra sauce on Wild Wild Country. Hey, thanks for having thanks me. Thanks so really much. It was great it. talking this morning. Spoiler alert on the blended beavers. Sorry oh about God. that. Well, technically, it's already been in the news. Right, 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 yeah, right, right. This yeah, whole thing yeah. has. It's just somehow. You know, I remember her, you know, the more I watched, I remember watching, I think it was the Nightline 10th anniversary show. And she t- was on it? And they showed her because oh. she said bullshit oh, every yeah, time yes. she was on, like yeah. six times. Yeah. And she would always swear. It was crazy. I mean, yeah, you see the footage, like the footage in the documentary when they're on, like the Merv Griffin show, and and they're oh, doing. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was, it was, it was. Yeah. And I completely missed it. I feel like I missed like half of a decade or something. I'm, right. I'm really disappointed about that. But I caught up. I mean, it's really, really good television. So, all right. Thank you very much for listening this week to Extra Sauce. We'll be back next week with another episode. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, then please subscribe to Extra Sauce on Stitcher or on iTunes or on Google Play. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.